Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. We want to open up God's word. We want to read it. We want to be spoken to by God. So what I want to do is just say this. We make all sorts of excuses as beloved children of God as to why we aren't worthy of God's love. We, we create reasons as to why these beautiful truths that we proclaim about God are for others but not for ourselves. So my hope and honestly my desire in preparing and praying this week was that you would know that the story that God tells about you is greater than the one the enemy tells, people tell, or even you tell yourself. Amen? You, you were made in the image of an amazing, loving, and kind Father who is gracious and all-powerful. Accept it. Accept it as truth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one verse, then we're going to read a bunch of different ones, um, and then I'm going to pray. Cool? Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of today. Thank you for this time where we can come together, God, and sit with your word. I pray, God, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be found pleasing in your sight. God, may I decrease so that you would increase. Would you use my faulty speech and my imperfect preaching to paint a picture of your beautiful love for us? Help us today, God, to enter into a truth that is sometimes hard for us to acknowledge and accept, but one that is true nonetheless. We love you, Lord. Bless us with your word. It is in your son's beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm, I'm, I'm working under this one particular title. It's a simple one, but it's kind of a hard truth. And I, when I say it, I know that some of us, because I, I feel this myself, aren't exactly comfortable with what I'm about to say. God wants us to see his face. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it's true. God wants us to see his face. Psalm 7, the, the, the psalm that we are taking our text from today, and I'm going to read the whole thing. It's, it's an important psalm, so I think I need to give it some context. You see, it is a psalm that is born out of crisis. Anybody know a thing or two about crisis? So we should already feel as if we're a part of what's happening. 
It's a psalm or a song, that poem, that works in two parts. Part one is pure panic. Again, anybody know what that's like? And the other one is stability. Anybody want stability? It's also a psalm about human counsel and divine salvation. The words that people use to comfort us and the comfort of the salvation that only God gives. It's a psalm about a king who knows that God, the God who sits securely on his heavenly throne, intimately knows the thoughts of the righteous and the wicked. And he executes very different judgments over those two groups. It's a psalm that ends the way it begins, with the Lord. And that's the way it should always be, right? It starts and it ends with the Lord. And that's a rhythm that you see all throughout Scripture. It is a psalm that teaches us a very powerful and slightly terrifying truth. God wants us to see his face. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this psalm and then we're going to talk about what seeing God's face is all about. So let's look at Psalm 11, verses 1 through 3. David, writing, says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So, right here, it appears that King David is once again in some trouble. Again, if you, you know the story of David, he got into some trouble every now and then. He is being advised by those who have been charged as royal counselors and trusted confidants to make a run for it, to bounce, to leave. Somebody's after him. And, and for David... Like, he hears this, and with this counsel fresh in his ears and heavy on his mind, he decides to not listen to how his, how his advisors define refuge. And instead of making a run for it, he becomes resolved to turn to the refuge of God's protection. He makes a turn. Somebody's telling him, you should do this. But he was like, refuge. Like, the Lord is my refuge. So he turns towards that. Now, this theme of refuge or help is ever-present in the Psalms. It keeps coming up over and over again. If the Psalms, if you haven't really dug into them, please do. This is Jesus' prayer book. This is what Jesus, where Jesus got his prayers from, is the Psalms. So this theme of refuge, right, it plays out throughout the Psalms. And in fact, this particular picture, like when I read of the hills or the mountains, it plays out in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. I lift up my eyes to the hill, hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Y'all remember that old song? There was an old, I forgot who sung it, but it was a popular song. It was beautiful, but it snatched right out of the Psalms. And there's something sweet about this level of assurance. At least there is to me. And I hope that there is to you. Because when it gets bad, even if you look up at the highest plane, at the highest point, your help isn't there. Your help comes from the one who made that highest point. We can't settle with the gifts 
we can't. Gifts are great. But the one who gave the gifts, he is our hope. He is the source of refuge. It is him that we run to. Anyway, this advice of making a run for it isn't like bad. It isn't if you come to think about it. It's actually great advice if we look at the situation through the lens of human wisdom. It makes sense. And we all at various times and in various circumstances will have to discern if the counsel we receive is well-intentioned or not. And I think scripture speaks to this. So, so how do you discern whether the advice you're getting is good or not? Well, it could be well-intentioned advice like the way that Peter advises Jesus in Matthew 16. So they're already coming. Jesus already says, listen, the cross is waiting for me. That's where I got to go. And then Peter turns to him and says this. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine the courage of Peter to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, this is well-intentioned, right? He doesn't want Jesus to endure any pain, but Jesus already knows what's coming. Peter was just trying to protect Jesus, not knowing that Jesus was already set on a path that would lead to the cross. Now, I think that there's a word even in that for us, because sometimes we, we have to do and learn what Jesus did and learned. That sometimes you have to see past the present pain to see the future glory. Sometimes we ourselves, we have to look, whatever the current situation is, whatever we're currently feeling, we have to look past that pain and to the cross because the cross reminds us of something hugely important. It reminds us that Jesus died for us, but he didn't stay on the cross. Amen? Amen. So Peter was just trying to protect Jesus. So it was well-intentioned advice. Now, some counsel we receive may be like the counsel that Nehemiah received in Nehemiah 6. So if you know the story, Nehemiah is overburdened by what he hears about is what's happening to his hometown, God's people. He's so burdened that he, he does the, you know, this audacious act. He gets favor from the king. He gets to go back. And as he's setting up and organizing the restructuring and the rebuilding of the walls, people get salty with him. And they try to come for him. And they come for him in really deceptive ways. So in Nehemiah 6, it's not on the screen. I just want you to hear this, 10 to 12. This is what we read. Now, when I went, Nehemiah, to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, such, such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go to the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent them. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. So in that moment, he had to discern, saying, you're asking me to do something I can't do. The temple is set up a certain way. You know, only one person could go in there one time a year to do this. So if I go there, a place that I can't even go, something's funny. I'm not going. So this council, this type of council, although it sounds good because it sounds pretty righteous, right, and religious, go hide out in the temple. This type of council is not well-intentioned. It is insincere and it is dangerous. Now, it's important to note that this is going to happen, or, or it may happen. Let me not say it's going to happen, but this type of stuff may happen when and once 
we've decided to do the right hard thing, right? Because opposition is real, and we can never view opposition as a sign of God's absence in the midst of hard things. I think Pastor Eric told us this plainly last week when he said, opposition is not always evidence of God closing a door. So just because it's hard doesn't mean that God's not with you to get through the hard thing. And just because it's hard doesn't mean you should run the other way. Sometimes you just gotta abide and stick in, stick with it and keep moving. But back to Psalm 11. So even though this advice that these royal counselors, like his trusted confidants are giving David, is good, he doesn't go for it. So even though this advice to make a run for the hills, right, we see in verse one, it seems like a good idea on paper, because if you look at verse two, you reread that the archers are hot on David's heels with their bows bent, like ready to let loose, like people are gunning after him. It makes total sense. But David knows what we need to know. He knows that God is the believer's true refuge. And this is a precious truth for all of us who need a reassuring word in season. Knowing this, this helps strengthen faith, faith, even in the face of opposition, not weaken it. And listen, we don't know what circumstances David is facing. We're not told. But the truth is, I don't think they're important for us because we can apply this to a whole set of circumstances. But what is important is that we get back to the place where we, like David, know where our help comes from. Amen? If we know this, then we know that Jesus showed up on the scene for us so that we would know God as the only and true source of refuge. So even under duress, even though we face trials and tribulations of many kind, right? That's what James says, counted joy when you face trials and tribulations of many kind because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so one could be complete, not lacking anything. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives freely without finding any fault. So even though we face trials and tribulations of any kind, those who call on the name of the Lord for salvation will stand because our lives are built upon Christ, our firm foundation, and not on the hills that shift and shake of verse three. So this psalm that opens up with words of panic quickly turns to the stability of the Lord's rule in the rain. Let's look at verses four through seven. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur, a scorching wind, shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall see his face. Here King David turns from worry and turns towards assurance. This is that shift we all gotta make at some point. It's completely natural to worry, but at some point, for those of us who have placed their trust in the Lord, we have to turn from a place of worry and anxiety to trusting in the stability and the assurance of God's word. David recognizes that his worries 
that seem big because they are big, right? We don't want to dismiss David's feelings, nor do we want to dismiss our own feelings. The stuff we're going through, it's big to us. We're not trying to say they're small, but it doesn't matter how big they are. Because we learned this, David teaches us this plainly. He says, he recognizes that his worries, even though that they seem big because they are big, are actually small considering God's greatness. They're big to us, but to God, they're a small thing. So why don't we just give it to God? Too much for us to handle, probably too heavy for us to carry, but not, not for the one who spoke everything into existence, not for the one who touched dirt to make us, the one who picked us up, breathed, and gave us life. Surely he can handle this when we can't. David knows that God knows all. David knows that God will judge all. David knows that even in the middle of crisis, if he can just manage to seek the Lord, to seek after doing righteous deeds, i.e. justice, if he could just figure out how to do the right thing, God will see him in his time of need. Beloved, this is an encouragement to anyone with ears to hear. If you are in trouble, if you are in need, if you need rescue, God sees you. He sees you. And he knows you. And according to the psalm, where he sees us from matters. You see, God sees us from his holy temple as he sits on his glorious throne. Now, why does this matter so much? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you haven't noticed yet, this psalm is written by King David, an earthly king who recognizes the true lordship, rule, and reign of the one whose kingdom has and will always continue to exist above all others. A king recognized that. All right, we'll just let that one sit. He knows that God will execute judgment upon those who persecute God's people. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The violent will experience the Lord's wrath in the form of Sodom-like raining down of coal, fire, and sulfur. That's kind of scary, right? But the promise made to the upright at the end of this age is that of beholding or seeing God's face. That's what verse 7 is saying. This is what waits the wicked, but for the righteous, the ones that could figure it out, the one who can turn and trust in the Lord, this is the promise at the end of the age that's for them. They get to behold God's face. Now, the Hebrew word uh, used here for face or countenance, right? That's what we use in the benediction, like lift up his countenance, right? It's panim. And the word implies or carries with it the idea of presence. So when we say face or beholding that, think presence. Now this, I believe, is another timely word for us today. This idea of presence. Now, what I'm going to say, I say it as a pastor who is obligated to faithfulness. My heart wants nothing more than to tell you that you are loved and cared for more than you can ever have dreamed of in your life. Like, I live to do that. 
but I'm also bound to truth. When we talk about God's presence, we got to say some things. We must long for God's countenance, his face, his presence. So we must long for God's countenance, not just God's church. Y'all with me? As Devin would say, you feel me? You feel me? We must long for his countenance, not just the church. It is entirely possible to be close to Christian things and completely miss Christ. Beloved, proximity is not presence. We should never equate church attendance with faithfulness and devotion to Christ. This is something that we as followers of Jesus should always evaluate and ask ourselves. Have we grown spiritually complacent? Are we settling for the things of God and not God himself? It's an important thing that we, we all have to self-assess and come to the Lord in prayer. Now, with that said, let's go back to the promise of verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Other translation says he loves justice. And the righteous will see God's face or behold his face. The upright will be vindicated. No matter what stuff they go through, the upright will be vindicated and the righteous will see God's face. Amen. Amen. Now, the reason this is so amen worthy is this, and, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but the ability to rightly stand before God is offered to all who, by faith alone, through grace alone, are clothed with the righteousness of the one who drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. I'm, right? So like I'm, the one, I'm talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, and we're going to come back to Jesus in a minute, but for now, I want you to hear this. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that God wants us to see him. I believe that because it is part of who he is. He wants to be known and he wants us to recognize that we are known by him. You can say that love always wants to be known. You don't love a thing without you, you wanting the thing to know that you love it. God wants us to see his face. He wants to be known. That is why he looks for those who rightly worship him, i.e. the righteous. Yet, we often find reasons to disqualify ourselves for being seen by God. We're good at it. We invent all sorts of stories and reasons why everyone else is more worthy of God's love and grace and gentleness and kindness than we are. We disqualify ourselves from the great gifts of God. We do it all the time. We often see ourselves as not being worthy to stand in his presence. Therefore, for the rest of the time that I got, I want to use it to together identify the barriers that keep us from being intimate with God, to talk about how seeing God face requires growing in knowledge and seeking intimacy with God, and lastly, to see that in Christ, we can stand before God with unveiled faces. Amen? Amen. So first, let's identify the barriers that keep us from intimacy with God. Now, in preparing this, I was totally 
understanding and knowing that I can't tell you what the barriers are for you, because I'm not you. I wouldn't dare to try to diagnose you spiritually in a 40-minute in a sermon. I wouldn't. But I do have a question. I have like three questions that you can ask yourself to kind of help you self-assess. The first question you need to ask yourself is, what are the things that keep us from seeing God? They could be different for every one of us. But if we look hard enough, we will see that there are some things that keep us from seeing God. It could be an emotional thing. It could be an emotion itself. It could be hurt. Hurt can keep us from seeing God because we're so focused on our hurt. But if we seek God for healing, then we can see God has removed the hurt. But we have to learn how to identify things if we want to be healed of things. So you got to sit with yourself to know what it is that you need. What are the things that keep us from seeing God? The next question, and this one is super hard. I get it. What good things have we elevated or exalted to a place that's rightly reserved for God alone? What good things have we put on a pedestal so high that we look at that instead of God? I know what those things are for me. They're probably different from you. This crowd's a little different from me. But may, maybe, maybe it's that job and that position that somehow, be, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. But you, you, you love it a little too much. That can become a barrier from seeing God. That can keep you from seeing God face to face because you're looking at the thing. These are all little shiny objects. We shine them up. We're really good at this. It could also be something like a relationship. I know some of us aren't with someone right now, but we want that someone. And if someone shows up, maybe we go too hard <laughs> in that relationship, and we just took that someone and put it up in a place where it doesn't need to be. Now, that can become a barrier, right, that keeps us from seeing God or keeps us from intimacy with God. So after you identify what the things are that, that keep you from seeing God are, once you figure out what the good things um, that exist in your life, what those are that you may have exalted to a place of, let's just call it idolatry. You, you just took a good thing and made it an absolute thing and now it's an idol. This is the question you have to ask. This is probably the hardest of them all. But what idols need to become altars? You know what happens at altars, right? Sacrifice. <laughs> the giving up of something for something better. The doing without a thing for the better thing. That has to happen. And that's a really hard thing to do. My encouragement to you is to not do it in isolation. To find people you trust. Good people who are prayerful, who can pray alongside you. Seek counsel from God's word, not from the advice of many. Go to God's word. What is God speaking to you through his word and prayer? Because then you can start to figure out how to do that, how to take something that you've made an idol and now make it a place of sacrifice to God. Because when you do that, he comes into focus. 
You can not only see his face, but you can truly be intimate with him. So, right? We have to identify the barriers that keep us from intimacy with God. We also have to know that seeing God's face requires seeking after and growing in intimacy with God. Now, that's a whole mouthful. I know. Just rock with me. Hopefully, I can explain it in a way that makes sense. I mentioned earlier that proximity is not presence. I mentioned that it is entirely possible to be close to Christian things and completely miss Christ. Now, let me explain a little bit about what I meant about that. So I believe that we sometimes buy the lie that we have to pick sides. We have to pick sides, we have to pick lanes, we have to pick tribes, and that we have to pick between like theological clarity and spiritual practices. I believe we often think that we have to be a professor or a priest. We make it an either or thing. And I believe that this way of thinking keeps us from growing in the knowledge of the Lord and seeking intimacy with God. I think when we do that, we make it really hard to be intimate with God. We do not have to pick a side. It isn't either or, it's both and. Seeing God's face requires work from us. So we need to be diligent and careful of our time. Seeing God's face like, requires from us. Like, it, it, it's work. It doesn't just happen. If it would come naturally to all of us, we'd all be good. But we know there's still stuff in our hearts that needs to be worked out. It's difficult. It's okay. Be gracious to yourself. Be kind to yourself. You don't need to have it all figured out. We need to be diligent and careful of our time in the word and in our time in our knees. It's not like we should be a people of the book without being a people of prayer. And it's not like we should be a people of prayer without being a people in the book. We need to be both, amen? We need to be both. We don't have to pick one above the other. We can be both. A disciplined approach to both opens us up to the instruction and the care of God. Now we know what God says, and because we spent time in prayer, we've been touched by God. God speaks of his great love for us through his word, and he touches us with his great love for us in prayer and in times of solitude. I don't know how you feel about that, but I love it. I love that he can speak to me and touch me. Now, Justo Gonzalez, a brilliant theologian, scholar, professor, preacher, once wrote about this saying this. He said, love of God and theological curiosity are not mutually opposed. Love always results in seeking to know more about the beloved, and true, and true understanding of the beloved leads to increased love. Therefore, we seek to understand our faith, not just to prove it to others or to know doctrines, but also, above all, as an act of love for God. Amen. We don't have to pick one above the other. They go, both go together. 
Now, please allow me to be clear. I am not saying that there isn't a need for theological training and a healthy apologetics debate. I know people love that stuff. If that's your thing, then do it all for the glory of God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is, is that if what you end up with in this process is a loveless and fruitless moment in time, and time is a non-renewable resource, right? Once it's gone, it's gone. Then you miss the mark and completely whiffed on an opportunity to paint a picture of God's glorious love for us in Christ. What that means is this. If, if you're going to go into those debates and all of that just to be right and not to witness, you just wasted time. You, used, you, you wasted an opportunity to paint a picture of the glorious love of God through his word, not outside of it. And if you're one of those folks like me, who can stare at a tree for an hour, one who listens for God's voice in the still, small, regular things of life, if that's you, I have two things to say to you. Number one, you're my people. Let's hang out. Two, those stolen moments, the ones that are snatched out of the sky in the middle of a mundane day, they're not to be stored away, never to be shared with a world that is waiting and watching. It is to be shared with anyone who may be in need of hearing, possibly for the first time, or to be reminded anew that we serve one who in our weakness and at the right time died for us. But his love didn't end there, did it? No. You know why? Because he didn't stay dead. He walked out of a tomb and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, raising us up with him. That's Ephesians 2, 6. And because of that, we know that we can, in Christ, stand before God with unveiled faces. Because of what he did, now we can enter in. You see, during Jesus' day, the temple was at the center of Jewish life. Animal sacrifices were offered up there. The Holy of Holies, which had been the earthly dwelling place of God's presence, was there. There was a clear separation between God and his people. Like, and, and right before, this was, this was the climate of the day. Then we get, we get to Jesus' life. We get to the whole passion narrative. We get to the cross. And we, what we read in Scripture is that right before Jesus breathed his last breath on that fateful day... The Bible tells us that the curtain or the veil that stood as a barrier between God and the one and only person who was allowed to enter in to offer sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation was torn from top to bottom. It was a whole system in place. One time a year, one person could go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, he couldn't even talk. But when Jesus breathed his laugh, that veil, that thing that kept us from being in the presence of God, from top to bottom, torn, removed, gone. Israel, God's people, who observed the rituals and followed the rules. Well, no, I jumped ahead. See, Israel lived an old covenant lifestyle. They were a people of the book, like for real, for real. So much that they have 1,613 laws that they try to follow. God gave them, but there was a reason for that. We, we can't get into all of that here. But they did this stuff. 
They observed all the rituals. They followed the rules. They were diligent in the way that they worshiped. They lived an old covenant life full of old covenant ways. So when the Bible tells us that the veil was torn, we need to know that this was a big deal. The tearing of the veil signified a physical act, right? The offering up of Jesus's own body as a sacrifice that is sufficient for the atonement of sins. Don't got to do the animal thing no more. Jesus took care of it once and for all. But it also opened up all people, Jews and Gentiles, amen, to the very presence of God. And in the book of Acts, we read that God moved out of the temple and he no longer dwelled in temples built by human hands. The old covenant with all of his rituals and regulations was gone. In Christ, God, God got rid of the first to establish the second, amen? That's Hebrews 10:9. In Christ, we have the glory of the new covenant life where all who are in Christ can enter into God's presence simply by calling on his name. That is the glory of the new covenant life. That is why we can say that God wants us to see his face. But here's the thing. Some of us are trying to see the glory of the new covenant life through old covenant veils. We still erect veils that Jesus tore down that keep us or hinder us from seeing God face to face. This is not how we ought to live. And at some point, we need to just accept and acknowledge that trying to earn or keep our salvation, presence with God, is not something we do. It is not something that we can produce because salvation is all of grace. Amen? The Apostle Paul talks about this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 16. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Amen. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is that taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, but when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. There is no doubt in my mind that God wants us to see him. It's part of who he is. He wants to be known and he wants us to recognize that we are known by him. This is why he looks for those 
who rightly worship him. Yet, we often find reasons to disqualify ourselves from being seen by God. We often see ourselves as not being worthy to stand in his presence. But if we can just find a way to be honest with ourselves, if we can bring all of ourselves before God, who knows all things anyway, if we can somehow manage to be okay with not being okay and face it, we're not fooling anyone anyway. If we can just do all of that, then we be then and only then can we begin to identify the barriers that keep us from intimacy with God. We can grow in knowledge and in seeking intimacy with the Lord, and we can stand before the Lord with unveiled faces. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for wanting us to see your face. Father, we pray that as we, we look through this psalm this week as we seek to identify the things that keep us from being intimate with you, you would not only reveal those things to us, but that you would encourage us and remind us anew of your great love for us. Father, we confess that life is hard. And we're facing some stuff, Lord. But we also proclaim that you are greater than our stuff. So before you, Lord, we drop it. We surrender those things to you, knowing that you are a good, gracious Father who gives good gifts to his beloved children. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's beautiful and powerful name. Amen.